Zarina here today, who is a lawyer who went to the Phoenix College of Law, Phoenix School, Phoenix School of Law, mm-hmm. Phoenix School of Law, and has worked at the Attorney General's office, working to do you call it prosecute or? Well, we represent the state in the uh, cases they do um, for removals of children from parents. So yeah, it's a prosecutor role. And then, but you now also play the role of defending parents who are facing state intrusion. Correct. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk with you today because I think it's really interesting that you've seen both sides of this system. And then just first wanted to ask, at a high level, do you think that Arizona as a state does a good job of caring for neglected kids? I, I Obviously, I think my position has changed a little bit now that I represent parents, and but I think that DCS as a whole does a good job at identifying neglected children and providing the services that the parents need in order to reunify. Sometimes I think that they overstep their boundaries maybe mm-hmm. by some um, extent and they become intrusive in the family's lives when a lesser level of intrusion is, is really what is needed. And when you say that the state is intrusive, like can you give examples of that? Sure. So like when DCS gets a report, right, and then they're charged with investigating the abuse or neglect of the child. And so sometimes what happens, especially I think in the Latino populations, there's a lot of like male dominated relationships and a lot of cultural things that are, you know, considered normal in the Latino family. And so, like what? For example, not that domestic violence is considered normal, but, you know, oftentimes, there's the father works and, and the mom has really no control or say so of the finances and so forth. And in some cases like that, I've seen where DCS gets involved and they're asking mom to be more independent from her spouse or her partner. And rather than providing in-home services to help you know, the removal of the children, they remove the children. And so once the removal of the children that triggers automatic trauma, specifically I think for, for women, the mothers naturally, and not to lessen the role of the father because I think it affects them just as much, but specifically for mothers because then they're put in a position where they don't work, they're not employed, they don't have financial resources to be able to separate themselves from their spouse and yet yeah. they're faced with having to, they want their child back as soon as possible. And so I think in those circumstances, exploring alternative means to services for those families mm-hmm. is beneficial because what happens especially to a lot of my clients in that situation is they kind of do a downward spiral mm-hmm. instead of getting better and getting right. their kids back it kind of leads them to a depression mm-hmm. and then they've never in their life asked for behavioral health services medication and so they don't know how to access them or mm-hmm. how to get them another issue is too is that a lot of these are it comes to play when there's a lot of undocumented families mm-hmm. and so how do they acquire the resources when they don't qualify for access health insurance or they don't have independent health insurance of their own i have seen dcs be very accommodating in that in that spectrum and that they it requires them to go above and make special referrals and they do so for the most part it's just trying to get the parent engaged and acknowledge what the issue is so either they get their their child back as soon as possible or you know they participate in the services yeah
So DV is an issue that impacts all races, but you were pointing out that a lot of the DCS enforcement is towards Latino families. Why do you think that that is if DV occurs in every population? So I think, I mean, and not to say that it's just happening in the Latino families, it's widespread throughout African-American. I've even seen it like in Asian families through DCS. But I think with the Latino population, it's coupled with the mom not really being able to speak up. And so I think it comes to the attention of DCS more because it's triggered by something interestingly enough that the children report at school because the children are a new generation right and they're not their parents and so they're saying something at school and then that schools are mandated reporters and so that kind of triggers some of the investigation so, so I think it's come to, about that way but for the most part I think the Latino families especially are very hush-hush in reporting domestic violence whereas other races are not you know you'll see a lot of police reports a lot of police calls and and DCS is pretty good. I don't think for a first offense they're going to remove your kids, but it has to be a history of it and, you know, impending risk of danger to the children. So do you think that part of the reason why there's a lot of unreported domestic violence is that there are a lot of undocumented people in the Latinx community? Or also, I mean, I think for good reason, there is a lot of distrust in communities of color calling the police because, I mean, I guess the issue is you want to be able to call and get help but your really only option for calling for help automatically involves the authorities and automatically brings about the possibility that your kids could be taken away and i think that actually makes communities less safe yeah no i would agree with you i mean i have several clients that are in that position where there's a history of dv she's in danger the children are in danger but instead of screaming or fighting back, they stay completely silent yeah. because they fear enforcement would show up. I've had clients tell what am I going to do if I get deported? Because right. what's going to happen to my kids either way? So I'm just going to suck it up and not, not report anything. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's a catch-22 because you want to ask for help and you're taught to believe that law enforcement will report it, but at the same time you have this fear, especially now in the, the way the political scene is that, you know, they're gonna get deported and then their kids, most of the time their kids are US citizens and so the kids remain here and what's the lesser of the two evils that they stay, they stay here with the abusive father or in state care or that they, you know, stay with their mother and in the relationship that they're in. Mm -hmm. Based on what you've seen, what's the thing that triggers DCS to get involved? Is it just police calls or, or like calls to 911? Or are the like, I know also that DCS gets involved when a parent is detained mm -hmm. in immigration detention. I saw that a lot when I was doing deportation defense. So I'm just curious about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, it's a plethora of things. Of course, number one is like a police call if there's a DV incident. 
you know, interestingly enough, there's also a lot of substance abuse that comes up with a lot of the reports. A lot of the parents, they're not taking their children to school on time. Uh, they have significant tardies, excessive absences, and then that will kind of trigger an investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and what I said before is, you know, the kids are so innocent. And so as soon as DCS starts to kind of get a report, because they're mandated to report it, you know, if it's called into their hotline, mm -hmm. they interview the kids. And so... So like, let's say a teacher who has a kid with excessive tardies, that teacher would be the one to call DCS. Yes. Because teachers are mandated reporters. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, For people that don't know, mandated reporter is somebody that by law, given their professional role, is required to report abuse of a child if they believe that it's occurring. Right. And so it could be anything to also, you know, a, a kid shows up with an unexplained bruise. And so I think that teachers are put in a difficult position because They've asked, they ask the kids, you know, what happened, and they let the parents know, but sometimes some of these parents are unresponsive, and then that will, that will trigger, you know, a, a hotline report. And so once that hotline report comes in, then DCS comes either knocking at your kid's school, and usually that's, in my experience, what they've done first, and the kids are so innocent, so they usually spill all the beans, right? And so it doesn't really give the parents any time to fix the story or recant it. And so a lot of times what, what the children, it's what the children are reporting versus what the parents are reporting. Substance abuse is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. In the Latino community specifically, it's, it's been cocaine and meth, but overall I think it's, it's a huge issue specifically here in Arizona too, and Tucson. Yeah, I, I think the meth is a huge issue across Arizona. Yeah. That's something I've, I feel like I've noticed since moving to Tucson. Yes, that is. switch or I guess I should ask first would you were you at the AG's first and then you started defending parents I was um, I was at the Attorney General's office for almost three years and what made you switch so let me preface it by this it's a great job and it and it teach it teaches you a lot about like litigation and stuff but I think what this is not an endorsement of that decision <laughs> yes it's not an endorsement <laughs> but I think what made me switch is that it was difficult for me to align my beliefs with some of the, the what the state rules were or what the caseworkers like, like had what? to do. Like what? Sometimes I didn't think that an, an, a removal was appropriate or mm -hmm. that there was a lesser, less intrusive way to manage that family mm -hmm. to be able to reunify them. And so once once DCS decided a removal was necessary, that was it. And so like if you didn't personally believe it, then there was no way around it. Whatever they told you, you kind of had to represent. I think that goes with any client. And, but as a as a parent as an attorney representing parents, I think I have a little bit more leeway in, in telling them what my experience is and recommending to them what they should or shouldn't do. that a lot of your role is a social worker role. I felt that a lot when I was doing immigration, when I was doing deportation defense. 
I felt like a lot of the work is kind of like social work. Yeah, definitely. I think it is because I think DCS, once in a while DCS targets more affluent families, but almost always it's people that are low income. That's what I was going to bring up. Like, do you think that DCS is intruding in people's lives because they are poor? I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if they're doing that or if people with more money and neighborhoods are able to hide it more. And so it's right. not easily... Well, that's why the police support. involvement is really important to point out because like communities of color are more likely to interact with the police for because they live in neighborhoods that are police more. So I just don't think... I always think about this, especially because of the history of social work. The first social workers in the early 1900s were trying to manage the Eastern European immigrants that were coming into the U.S. And it was kind of xenophobic from the start. It was just like, these immigrants don't know how to take care of their kids. And that's it. a lot of times state involvement with families feels like that. Yeah, and I would agree too. I think I think not that it's not happening the drug use like in Valley or anything like that, yeah. but in the poorer neighborhoods, it's where it's more they're more likely to run into police because of what's happening around them, whether all to not being able to take care of their children mm-hmm. appropriately first, and they don't have the the resources to pay a nanny or pay, you know, daycare to watch the kids all the time. So, but the neighborhoods where these lower income people live are definitely policed at a much higher rate. And Mm -hmm. so there's more interaction and they're more likely to be arrested or their kids are more likely to report something to authorities than, than in the other schools. Did you know when you started law school that this is what the kind of law that you wanted to do? No, I wanted to do divorce law. What? And I, and I, and I <laughs> Nobody still, ever says yeah. they want to do and divorce law. And I still law. do divorce. But, oh, really? And I do enjoy it, but I don't think I could solely do divorce because... What do you enjoy about it? Well, I like I like the clients sometimes, but I, on yeah. a full-time basis, it's just so mentally draining. And so going back to your question about social work, I do I have a contract, so the way I get that the county will pay me, and then their rate is based on the income they have, if any. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, they don't have income or they qualify for a zero assessment of fees. And so... To me, the work that I do at juvenile court with the clients that are having DCS cases is more fulfilling in a way because you're able to interact with them. You're not contentious about payment or who's going to pay you. Right. Um, but regardless of the payment, I think that specifically these families need the help. And then it's really fulfilling when they actually take advantage of your services mm-hmm. and then the services that are offered to them and they get their kids back. Yeah. Or they their kids were removed and then these people who can never afford attorneys, you know, have no idea what to do and then the first hearing happens and the court says, you know what, you can have your kid back and there was not a necessary reason for the kid to be removed. So I have a good balance, I think, because I do a lot of juvenile work, mm-hmm. and, and I really like that. If I did it full-time, I probably... I did it full-time for, like, two years, and I recently started doing more divorces. 
but but I wouldn't give it up for the world. And if there's any <laughs> Spanish speakers, you know, <laughs> attorneys. Pima County specifically is really lacking in Spanish speaking attorneys. Oh, yeah. That do that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's like four of us and there's maybe like 80 contracts. There's so many people who want to get divorced. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm not even divorced. I think mostly, you know, specifically for divorce, but for the the people that defend the parents on the mm-hmm. on the DCS cases, mm-hmm. there's only four attorneys. So it's highly needed because like you said, there's a lot of children that are removed because their parents are not able to cross again. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it gets kind of sad though because we're stuck in like how are we able to reunify the family because the mom or the dad can never come back and then the kids have been here all their life so they don't want to go to Mexico and so we've been able to find alternative the local consulate office Karen is is great I don't know if you know Karen Mm -hmm. she's really great at helping us identify services for the parents over there in, in any part of Mexico really and so Sometimes the kids do want to go back and it works out. Other times we're able to do like a guardianship with a family member here. And that works really well too because it gives the kid what they want. They want to stay here in the United States and then the parent's able to still maintain contact via phone until they can figure out their immigration status. Yeah, I've talked about this before with Gabby when she was on the podcast and I think it's just important to highlight this aspect of quote-unquote family separation because I think... Like so many people were so outraged, I think because Trump sparks this particular huge outrage about separating families at the border. But the thing is that families have been separated at the border for so, in so many different ways. And like one of them is parents being detained, you know, people who've been living here for long periods of time, and then kids who end up in state custody because there's no legal guardian that they have here in the U.S. And like you said, it just presents an impossible choice because do you stay in this country that's the only country that you've ever known that you're a citizen of or without your parent? Or do you go back to this country that you've never known so that you can reunite with your parent? Yeah, I think it's a difficult position. I think that's why I really admire the work Gabby does Mm -hmm. because most of her clients are not going to be able to reunify because on the cases I have with the Florence Immigration Project, my clients are sometimes so far down as Guatemala Mm -hmm. or, you know, Honduras. And so at that point, their financial resources are so scarce, they're never going to come. And they actually prefer that their their children remain here and hopefully they have a better life. But yeah, there's a lot of unaccompanied minors coming from Central America. And yeah. that's the level of poverty that people are... I mean, it's not just poverty. There's a lot of asylum seekers too that are fleeing specific types of persecution. But yeah, the economic situation is so dire that parents really are like, this is wild, but I'm going to encourage you to take this journey by yourself because oh, yeah. there's a possibility, you know, there's just... A significantly higher possibility that you'll be able to have a better life in the U.S. than if you stay here. Oh yeah, yeah. I I have uh, plenty of clients, especially the ones I do the cases I do with Gabby, where that's the case. Mm-hmm. And then you call them, and they're like, No, no, no. He's, yeah. I no, we've done this. this. <laughs> yeah. And so, luckily, it's been working well. The types of visas that Florence Immigration Project is trying to get, I think I've become concerned because I hope that due to whatever happens in the next you know, voting season, it, that that is able to stay. There's the trafficking visa, uh-huh. there's the T visa, and then there's, well, the U visa is if you're a victim of a crime, but that's within the U.S. Okay. There's special immigrant juvenile status. It's a special immigrant juvenile status. Those are mostly the ones that they're working on, and so I've seen it do great things for a lot of the kids, and 
are quick learners. They instantly yeah. like learning English, and it's amazing how how they value their presence here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen good work done. And so for those, you know, my clients are just grateful that there's attorneys like Gabby there mm-hmm. that are willing to and able to help them and see if they can get, get that special immigrant status visa. Mm-hmm. Wait, so you represent indigent people who can't afford to defend themselves? Correct. When the state is trying to take their Correct. Away. Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that listen to the podcast are either interested in going to law school or they're in law school and are could be thinking about opening up their own practice. So you mentioned that you left the AGs and then you cashed out your pension right? Yeah. in order to fund your private practice venture. Yeah. Yeah. I think at that point in time, I was pretty much done with government work and so yeah. I was looking for a way to transition but I, I don't come for money and so I was like okay what am I going to do and so I took a huge leap of faith and I did cash it out but I think it's repaid itself in the way that I've been able to manage my time more, prioritize the types of cases I want to do and then specifically I think it allows for pro bono work and to dedicate time where you think that it's really going to be needed and the people that you're helping are going to be able to benefit from your services. Now that I'm in private practice, I don't think I could go back to government work, but I think government work is great because you get so much um, guidance and then you get a lot of people that you, you work with, like your peers, and you're able to bounce ideas off of each other. But you're Are you a solo practitioner? I am. So how do you get mentorship? Luckily, Tucson is such a small community that I've been able to build like relationships with the people I used to work with. The contract panel that defends parents in the DCS cases is amazing. I think probably a group of like 50 attorneys and we are all, there's oftentimes I have questions about, specifically about immigration and and, and it, immigration is so complicated yeah, because I get asked every day because everyone wants that and, and yeah. I don't know how to do it but I have so many colleagues that are so amazing at it so I can refer them to them people and luckily you guys all have such good hearts that you're you guys <laughs> can't say no <laughs> it's alright I can never say no either so. pro bono thing I think it's really cool that you take on these other cases like divorce or uh, wills and estates that are more lucrative so that allows you to, to take on cases of indigent folks and like represent unaccompanied minors and their SIG applications so what I do is I represent the parents in that but okay. because they're parents who have had their constitutional rights at question and their kids are removed they're entitled to court-appointed counsel uh, but no. so even if the parents are undocumented and in a different country yes they're they're entitled to court-appointed counsel and, and they get that through um, th- through the Pima County Juvenile Court wow. and so it's pretty great though because they oftentimes have so many questions just themselves and so 
It takes so the much. The parents, yeah, and it takes so much. So you actually contact them. Yeah, yeah. Wow. we we can contact them, and the court facilitates all the the communication, and we're able to call them. But I think it takes so much from them to send their kids unaccompanied to see to hope for the best, and then once they're able to talk to someone that speaks Spanish, or even if they don't speak Spanish and they speak a different dialect, it's interpreted. I think it puts them at ease with yeah. the decision that they made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think on the contract for Pima County, it's maybe like 50 or 60, okay. but there's only four Spanish-speaking ones, and so we are in dire need for Spanish-speaking contract attorneys who are willing and able to represent uh, uh, parents, I think. I mean, that's just a need that's, that's really needed right now. So uh, in a situation where, well, I don't know if this comes up because I don't know if you only partner with Florence Project on cases where the parent is on board with the SIDGE process, but if in a situation where a parent is opposing the state intervention, what would you do as the parent advocate? So I've never come across that because okay. most parents who have unaccompanied minors here in the United States want their kids to stay in the United States. Okay. Either that's what know, I was wondering because, if it happens or yeah, no. Either because that's their child's opportunity at, at gaining some type of visa or pathway to citizenship. If it were to happen, you know, my job is to be able to reunify them. Oh, really? Yeah. And so sometimes it happens. I've had it in a case, not where Florence Immigration Project is involved, but where DCS is involved and it was an unaccompanied minor and the father resides like in Nogales. So somewhere close to the mm -hmm. border and mother either is deceased or she's not able to reunify. And so in a particular case, the dad wanted his little girl back. And so he lived in Nogales, he worked there, he had family there, he had a support system there. And he asked for a trial as a dependency, and he was successful at trial. And the little girl, she had lived here her whole life in the United States, but she started visiting her dad in Nogales, Sonora. Ultimately, she returned to him. And so he was able to work again um, with the consulate's office, and they assisted him in like transportation over there and stuff. So that was a, a successful case because there was only one parent involved and so really that child had no choice they if they wanted to be reunified the child was a little bit younger too like seven mm -hmm. i think it becomes harder when the kids are 15 16 17 where they're entering adulthood and they have to start thinking about the future and what's going to be best for them i feel like it's always hard to represent kids as an attorney at any age because like when they're younger it's like maybe they seem sure but then you're also like as an adult with a fully formed brain, you don't really know what's best for you or what that means or, okay. you know, cause like kids, kids form attachments to parents, even abusive parents. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, so, and, but then when they're teenagers, it's like, okay, you feel more comfortable with their own thought processes. But it's, I think the question is still there because they're ultimately their brains aren't fully formed and their decision-making abilities aren't 
yeah. fully formed, but also like, you know, I'm a client-centered lawyer and I always want the client to lead. That's why I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't represent I think exactly like you. I think, I, I find it hard because I also represent not only parents, but I represent children not as often, but you'll get the young children where their parents are drug addicts or they just can't get off, get off whatever drug they're using. And regardless of what their parents are or where they came from, the child wants to reunify. And so that's your job is to tell if she wants to go home, he wants to go home. And then I've seen times where... Like, it's a hard emotion. I think it's hard because you as an attorney know it's not safe to go home. You can't go home. And so you can only present to the court what your client's position is. Luckily... Yeah, that's, that's ethical. Yeah. Luckily, DCS does a really good job in most cases where it's absolutely unsafe to go home. And so they'll move forward. They'll file a motion for termination, a motion for guardianship, and they present their case. And then as a child's attorney who where the child wants to return home, your job is to say why they should go home. And so in those cases, the visit notes are always like helpful because these parents love them. You don't do the visits, the social workers. No, yeah, the social workers do the, the visits, but the visits for the most home part visits. are always, yeah. Uh, oh, no, I'm talking about the visits between the parents and their kids. Oh, like, the supervised Yeah, visits. the supervised visits. Those are always usually good, obviously, because they're in a supervised setting. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the issue of foster placements. And are they really doing it for the love, or are they doing it for the subsidy that they're going to get oh, uh, when when they adopt? And so uh, those are some of the issues, I think, too, is yeah. in post-termination proceedings. Definitely. I think going back to your example of the father who's in Norales, Mexico, and the daughter who was going to be taken into DCS custody, is it always the AG's position to put the kid in state custody, even in that situation where there's a parent fighting? Yeah. For I, the kid? Because yeah. that to me is like, that seems like a waste of resources. Why would you want to separate that father and child? So I think in that particular case, the child had been with the mother who was a U.S. citizen and then she died like of an overdose. And so dad had been parenting, but not full time. And so their position was that without a approved home study, which DIF and the consulate will will generate, that they weren't going to send her back home. And so she... But the consulate was willing to cooperate. Yeah, yeah. But, so, they, but they were still like, no. But DCS didn't, didn't care. That's a pretty hard line stance. Yeah. And so... And, and it kind of surprised me because the consulate and DIF together, like, departamento, it, it's in Mexico. Okay. It's the subsidy of like the consulate. And so okay. that those offices are in Mexico and they are whatever region that person is in. There's one in Nogales. And so they work with the consulate to be able to generate those home studies. So they go out and they generate the home studies for that parent. In this case, the removal was so sudden, and so they couldn't generate it fast enough. And so she, that little girl was in, in foster care for quite some time. Wow. Yeah, like I said, it, it just seems like such a waste of resources when, you know, she could have spent that time reacquainting herself with her dad instead of being with strangers. Because it, it seemed it's such a extreme position to take a child from living with a 
blood relative to a stranger. No, yeah, no, I understand completely. Diff means desarrollo entregal de la familia. Like I think of um, I feel like, yeah, like part social services. I think in that situation too with that specific family, it was um, the longer that the time passed, the, the little girl got more acquainted with the placement that she was at. So that was hard for her too, to leave here and then go back to Mexico where she had never gone to school or anything like that. That's just so hard to this multiple traumas that that little girl has to deal with. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. But I last I heard she's doing really well. And so it was a successful ending to that story. Well, that's good. It's very rare that I'm able to say we can end on a positive note. Right. So let's end on a positive note. Selena, thank you so much for coming here and talking about your experiences defending parents who are facing separation from their children to state custody and also your time in the AG's office and generally um, sharing your experiences with a Latina. Yeah, <laughs> the no. term I like to use. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Bye, everyone.